we're going to read verses 18 through 25. After this huge battle uh, against the uh, Amalekites, who had taken away all of their wives and children, etc., it says, So David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. David rescued his two wives, and nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all. Then David took all the flocks and herds they had driven before those other livestock and said, This is David's spoil. Now David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they also made to stay at the brook Besor. So they went out to meet David, to meet the people who were with him. And (coughs) when David came near the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. But David said, My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. So it was from that day forward he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and I pray that as we dig into it, that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our understanding to understand it, to love it, and to live it out. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. A.W. Tozer said, Everything in the universe is good to the degree it conforms to the nature of God and evil as it fails to do so. Now let me read that again because we're going to be challenged on our Christ-likeness right out of the chute on that first point when we look at God's attitudes toward the Amalekites. Tozer said, Everything in the universe is good to the degree it conforms to the nature of God and evil as it fails to do so. And so my first question this morning is, do our attitudes towards sin and sinners conform to the image of God. Uh, What is our visceral reaction to verse 17? And I know we ended on this one yesterday, but let's go ahead and pick up with it. I mean, last week. Then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. Now, we've already seen that David was not a rogue terrorist. Uh, When he did this, he was obeying an explicit command of God in Exodus chapter 17 that God did not want any mercy shown to an Amalekite. And this was repeated in 1 Samuel 15 uh, when uh, uh, he told uh, King Saul to do the same thing. He wasn't just rescuing his sons and daughters. Commentators point out, yes, he was doing that, but he was passionately carrying out the will of God that Saul had failed to do. And the writer of this book is setting up this contrast, David doing in one day what Saul had failed to do in an entire lifetime. 
Now, we can soften the ghastliness of this uh, massacre of tens of thousands of men. We aren't told exactly how many, uh, but uh, we're told everybody was wiped out except for 400 men. And so uh, commentators say, especially because nothing is heard in secular or uh, biblical Amalekites for another 290 years, um, he, uh, commentators say this must have been an incredible massacre, maybe 10, 20, 30,000. We're not told how many uh, were taken out. Well, we can soften the blow a little bit about, uh, by saying, you know, they were really deserving of that death. They were the reavers of that day. Uh, Toby pointed this out on Facebook uh, last week. Thank you, Toby. Now, most of us have never seen the, the, the movie the Firefly or Serenity, so we have no idea what reavers were. But I looked it up on Wikipedia, and whoa, these were bloodthirsty uh, critters in that fictional account. But uh, since most of you have not heard of what the Reavers are, uh, maybe some of you have seen Indiana Jones' Temple of Doom. I don't recommend the movie. It was pretty gruesome. Uh, we had gone to the... We know there's one Indiana Jones that's bad. We want the good one. Could you recommend... So they gave us the, the wrong one. We watched it. I was going to turn it off, and I said, no, you know, our kids, if they watch this, I think they're going to appreciate what God was doing to the Canaanites. Because that collie-worshipping, thuggy cult is sort of approximating what the Amalekites uh, were like uh, back in, in that day. <clears throat> and so it would help you to have, uh, have a little bit of sympathy. Now, just as an example, when the Egyptian was left to die by his Amalekite master earlier on in this chapter, it, it illustrates the utter disregard for human life that the Amalekites had. And uh, it's just a, a tiny little word picture there. If you were in close proximity to the rape, the, uh, the, the, the plunder, the torture, the inhumanity of the Amalekites to all of their neighboring, uh, neighboring tribes, you might be a little bit less judgmental of God's declaring perpetual war upon the Amalekites in Exodus chapter 17. In fact, why God even said that he hated them. But even if they were reavers or thuggies, I think modern or postmodernists, they prefer a quote-unquote nice approach to such people, uh, locking them up in a, a, a psychiatric hospital and pumping them full of drugs. Uh, they're so soft-hearted that they would not even want to kill a Jeffrey Dahmer in this country, and yet here is the weirdness about it. The same people who are so soft-hearted they won't do that, uh, they will routinely declare war against other nations and kill tens of thousands of people in other countries. So don't ask for consistency with uh, postmodernists. Some of them will object that even though the men in this chapter may have deserved death, what about the women and the children in 1 Samuel chapter 15? How in the world could you say that they deserved death? And we might be tempted to soften this again by saying, hey, this is not a normative warfare that was going on in 1 Samuel 15. Uh, this was people who were judged in God's courtroom. This was not Israel who had declared uh, this. They were simply the executioners, and Israel was not allowed to engage in that kind of warfare against anybody except for the specifically defined peoples within Canaan who had become kind of a reaver uh, culture. Harem warfare is not for today. We don't have continuing inspired revelation. And that's all true. 
But while it's true, my goal this morning is not to soften the punch of God's Word, uh, but to try to get us to understand that we really don't tend to think of people as being as evil and wicked as God uh, sees them. For example, it's pretty hard to soften the punch of God's attitude toward people who are in hell. Even nice people will be in hell, according to the Scripture. Uh, what do you do with that? All you have to do is read through the book of Revelation and you will see things like God casting people into the fiery, uh, 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 fiery hell and God's saints in heaven rejoicing over that, agreeing with God over that. For example, just one passage, Revelation 14, verse 11, it says, "...the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever." But a couple chapters later, it has the saints in heaven rejoicing over that. It says, Alleluia, for her smoke rises up forever and ever. And if you read the context, you will see that the saints in heaven are agreeing that God's judgments are true and righteous and good. And the reason that they can do that is they have been fully glorified. They are more Christ-like than we tend to be. I have a hard time, even as many years as I've been a pastor, I have a hard time being able to rejoice in that because I am far from Christ-like. That's the problem. But it poses a dilemma in our postmodern world. We are tempted to apologize for God. By the definition of postmodernists, you are not good if you agree with God's judgments. You are not good if you agree with the biblical call for the death penalty for certain crimes. You are not good if you agree with God's justice in declaring that harem warfare in Canaan or sending anyone to, to hell. But the irony is they declare you to be very good if you defend abortion, the gruesome, grisly torture of abortion, or if you defend CPS workers kidnapping kids out of people's homes. And God says the opposite. And I think A.W. Tozer is right when he says... Everything in the universe is good to the degree it conforms to the nature of God and evil as it fails to do so. God alone is the definition of good and evil. According to the Bible, the reason that people hate the doctrine of hell is because they are evil. That's why they hate the doctrine of hell. And rather than apologizing for, uh, for God, what we ought to be doing is saying, Lord, please, Give us the hatred for sin that you have, especially the hatred for our own sin. Now, before we dismiss this uh, uncomfortable portion of the, uh, the sermon, I want to dig a little bit deeper, and I want to point out that apart from God's restraining grace, any culture can very quickly degenerate into becoming an Amalekite culture. Now, most people question that because they've got a rather high view of human nature. They trust human nature. They trust people who are put into government. And they're absolutely shocked, you know, when stories come out of police officers in Tennessee robbing people rather routinely, uh, from, you know, who have out-of-state licenses, taking money. Recently, it was $20,000 they took from somebody. It took them four months to get it, and only the media exposed it. They're shocked when they find videos of police in, in, uh, in, in California seeming like they're having fun beating this homeless man to death. They're absolutely shocked that uh, the Nazis could do some of the things that they do. They say, how could anybody possibly do that kind of thing? 
You know, the Germans under Hitler were very nice people, very sophisticated, but within a generation, actually within a decade, less than a decade, they had degenerated into justifying a Malachite behavior. Who would have guessed at the millions killed in Russia, Cambodia, China, and in other countries? And actually, when you, when you read about the kind of torture that those communist countries have engaged in, it makes you want to throw up. And so people are surprised, but when you look at life like Christ does, you are not at all surprised when cultures degenerate into such a Malachite behavior. All it takes is God's restraining grace to be removed, and human depravity will take you there. I I want you to just think about how the Amalekites got there. Uh, The Amalekites themselves descended from Esau, Jacob's brother. That means they had Abraham and Isaac as their father. They had the revelation of God. Numbers chapter 24, verse 20, not only predicted Amalek's complete destruction, but it says that they had once been the chief of the nations. The chief of the nations, just like America is right now. God had very quickly prospered them. They were once admired. They were on the top of the heap, but apparently began this downward spiral into oblivion because they cast off all moral restraint, just like America is doing right now. We need to be in prayer for America that it would repent because if you think that America is not worthy of the kind of judgment that the Amalekites received, think of the millions of babies that have been slowly tortured to death in abortion in our country. We are on the doorstep of becoming a reaver kind of a culture or a thuggy culture, and that's why it's so critical that we pray for mercy and uh, for reformation in the church. Now, it's not just cultures that can become Amalek. Uh, Scripture indicates that when God's restraining grace is removed from people, Romans 1 words, it is giving them up, kind of dropping them, that any people in history, and certainly all people in hell, uh, those who are outside of Christ, it's guaranteed that they will very quickly become uh, reavers or thuggies. Don't feel sorry for those who are burning in hell. They are thuggies. It's not man's native goodness that keeps people from becoming worse. It's God's restraining grace alone. And every one of us could become Amalekites if it was not for God's grace drawing us to himself. Romans chapter 1 says that the moment individuals or nations are given up unto a depraved mind, they will degenerate into becoming Amalekites very quickly. And I believe that America is in the beginning stages of uh, being given up. And I believe that reformation in the church is the key to that reversal. And so the first thing that a Christ-like person is going to realize is that all sinners deserve worse than they get. So my prayer is, Lord, please conform our thinking to your thinking in this area. Now the second picture is a little bit happier, okay? Uh, (laughs) It's the picture of the Egyptian who received nursing care from David's men, who received food and water and the promise of protection. Now, he didn't deserve that. He was a pagan. He was one of the servants of the Amalekites. He admits in in verse 14 that uh, he had been involved in the burning down of Ziklag. He said, we burned Ziklag. So just as he didn't seek David, Romans 3, verse 11 says, there is none who seeks after God. Just as they had to pick this person up 
almost inert, you know. He was uh, almost dead. He was unable to move. And they brought him to David. Ephesians 2, 1 says, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Just as David promised not to kill him, not to turn him over to his master, Jesus promises to give us life and not to turn us back over to Satan. And just as he was utterly undeserving of mercy, every one of us is undeserving of mercy. And to me, this is a wonderful, wonderful word picture of how God finds and rescues sinners who are headed toward judgment. If this Egyptian had not been abandoned by his Amalekite master, he would have suffered exactly the same fate that they did. We aren't saved because we are so good. It's quite the opposite. I want you to listen to Ephesians 2.3. It says, Among whom also we all, that includes Paul the Pharisee, we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And here's the, the phrase, And were by nature children of wrath just as the others. He is saying... Our normal nature is the Amalekite nature. It's the Egyptian nature. We were all by nature children of wrath just as the others. And so it's saying that God's sovereign grace alone is what makes us different from the others. It pulled us out of hell and out of our sins. And I think David showed Christ's likeness in his attitudes toward that Egyptian. So what about us? Do we show mercy to the lost? Do we show compassion to the lost? The third word picture that I see in this passage is the women and the children who were taken captive. Now we pray in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from the evil one. And obviously God showed mercy upon these women and these children. They were probably crying out all through that time, Lord, please deliver us. Please protect us from these Amalekites. And just as Jesus laid down his life for his sheep, these men appeared to be quite ready and willing to lay down their lives for the sheep. They fought against tremendous odds. And so to that degree, all 600 men show Christ-likeness. Men, are we willing to suffer and endure hardship for our wives and our children? Or are we selfish in our relationship to our children? And there's the 400. Uh, they also show that God's grace is not just beginning grace, it is sustaining grace. It enables God's children to do that which they thought was absolutely impossible to do. And they did do something that was rather remarkable. Let me just quickly review it for you. For the previous five days, they have traveled with heavy equipment 20 miles a day. And then on this last day, they traveled 36 miles, and the last 16 of those miles they did at a jaw, a, a, a run actually. It was a half marathon pace. And when they get to the Amalekites at dusk, they fight for the next 24 hours from dusk to dusk of the next day. It was grueling. It was, they took their bodies almost beyond the body's endurance. And to me, it illustrates that God's grace not only sustains us spiritually, it also sustains us physically. I loved reading through uh, George Whitfield's uh, journals, all kinds of cool stuff in there, but one of the things that really struck me when I was reading through that was how many times God sustained his body. He was so exhausted because of preaching several times a day, traveling from place to place, people had to sometimes physically lift him up into the saddle because he couldn't climb into the saddle of his horse on his own. He could hardly stay in the saddle. He was so exhausted 
But when he would climb the stage to begin preaching, he would ask God to give him sustaining grace for his body. And the Lord just somehow strengthened him and gave him energy that surprised us. experienced the same thing in my body. And we really shouldn't be surprised by this. 1 Corinthians 2 not only spoke of Paul's weakness and trembling in body, but also spoke of the Spirit empowering his body. That's verses 3 through 5. 2 Corinthians 4 not only spoke of the physical distresses that his body was enduring, but also said two times within about three verses, two times, that the same life that sustained Jesus was at work in his mortal body. Now, do we have a faith to believe that God's grace reaches even to our bodies? If you've bought into the, to the, the Greek worldview, you're, tend to think, you're going to tend to think your bodies are really unimportant. Uh, but if you really believe what the Gospels talk about of God's interest in the body and Christ's ministry of healing throughout His, uh, throughout his three and a half year ministry... Uh, you're going to have faith to trust Jesus just as Jesus trusted the Father to sustain His body to go almost beyond the body's endurance. So here's the question. Do we have a Greek view of grace or do we have a view of grace that is Christ-like? The Bible says God's grace is comprehensive. One day it's going to even renew the very physical universe, giving us a new heavens and a new earth. Fifth picture is the weary ones. In verse 10 it says they could not continue. Now they were not being lazy. This is God himself saying they could not continue. And even though there were others who were utterly unsympathetic of them, God was sympathetic. God understood. And David reflected Christ's likeness in the way in which he greeted those 200. The literal Hebrew in verse 21 is that he asked after their welfare. Here he was, somebody who was absolutely exhausted beyond measure, but he's asking, he's concerned about their welfare. And so God shows compassion by not making those men go beyond what they are able to endure, but David shows compassion upon them as well by honoring the fact that they had given their all, even though it was not as much as what he and the 400 men had given. You see, Christ doesn't compare us uh, with each other. He just says, give your all to me. Just lay your all on the altar. Now, the plunder itself is another word picture. I think shows God's provision. It shows his attitude toward stuff. He does not hate finances or, or this physical world. And those who are ascetics, A-S-C-E-T-I-C, those who are ascetics, they don't have the mind of Christ. These 600 men, I bet you they would have been quite content, quite happy if they had just been able to get their wives and their children back. But in verse 19, it indicates they got every last thing back that had been stolen from Ziklag, which means God had kept those guys from eating and drinking the things. All they were eating and drinking was the stuff they had gotten from the Philistines. God did that because he cared. And then in verse 20, it indicates that it wasn't just the stuff restored from Ziklag. There was other stuff that they got, and in the following verses it indicates a massive amount of stuff that was uh, plundered by the Amalekites from all of the Philistines throughout that area. It was uh, beyond anything that they could have dreamed of. And to me this illustrates the proverb that the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. Proverbs 13, verse 22. And I think we need to evaluate our Christ-likeness 
in our attitude toward tangible goods. Now, it's true, those tangible our soul. That's idolatry. Christ says you have to give up everything to the Lord. He gives the same things back as a stewardship trust. And we're going to be looking at stuff next week. Uh, I postponed that one week so I could deal with this. We're going to look at that. But when we have stewardship hearts, He loves to entrust us with more. He's not opposed to stuff. In fact, Jesus said, The meek shall inherit the earth. God loves to give exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask or think. And to doubt that and to question God's generosity, uh, I think, is to not have the mind of Christ. Now, the next group, the sons of Belial, show me God's patience with tares. And let me explain why I believe that they were tares. Verse 22 says, Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David. Now, the literal Hebrew for worthless is Belial. It's a name for Satan. And it's also a name that is given to unregenerate people within the church. In fact, you've probably uh, heard the expression sons of Belial. Uh, Often it's translated as worthless men, but sons of Belial expression that specifically referred to people who claimed to be Christians. They were within the church, but they were unregenerate. They were sons of the devil, uh, is what it's, it's talking about there. So here are tares within the church. They're not genuinely regenerate, and yet I want you to notice how David addresses them in verse 22. But David said, my brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us. He addresses them as brethren. And this is a fascinating passage when uh, dealing with the whole Auburn Avenue uh, debate. And I think it also relates to Arminians who think that we can lose uh, our salvation. Uh, People cannot. Uh, How do we treat people who are in the church that we suspect are unregenerate? Well, Reformed history says you treat them with the judgment of charity. You treat them as believers. You treat them as brothers and sisters. Okay? It is, um, uh, it is not until there is sufficient concrete, objective, external evidence to excommunicate them that they get excommunicated, okay? It, it, it's, it, it's rebellion that's outward. It's very manifest. And even when they're excommunicated, Matthew 18 doesn't say you guarantee that their hearts are unregenerate. Uh, Matthew 18 says you treat them like a heathen and a publican. In other words, you don't really know what the state of their soul is. What it's saying is we need to deal with people objectively as they relate to the covenant. We're not reading their hearts. And to that degree, traditional Reformed people would agree with the Auburn Avenue uh, people. We're in, we're, we're in agreement with them on that. Where we would disagree is on whether they actually were regenerate, justified, and elect in the first place that there are differences among, among some of the Auburn Avenue uh, people, but I've read from some of their books where they say we actually do lose those things. They lose. And uh, as one person worded it, they spiritually are in Christ, not simply covenantally being in Christ like traditional Reformed people like ourselves would say. And this passage illustrates that. Long before these men apostatized, And while David is still calling them brethren, God knew that they were then and there wicked and worthless men. Okay, they were sons of the devil. Their character had never changed. And so this is not simply a contrast between the visible church today 
and the eschatological church of the future, like the Auburn Avenue people want to say, this is a difference between the visible church of today and the invisible church of today, right? So that the, the tares exist side by side uh, with the, uh, with, uh, the, the, the true wheat. Uh, they were like the sow in Second Peter 2, verse 22 that, um, you know, could be washed and made to look pretty and have a bow tie and be living amongst the sheep. But its true character is eventually going to come out and it's going to wallow in the mire. Here's the way 1 John 2, verse 19 words it. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. That's a perseverance of the saints, right? But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. And I think that's a critical verse in the Auburn Avenue debate as well as your debate with Arminians who believe you can lose your salvation. Now, beyond relating this to the Auburn controversy, I think this illustrates God's patience with the tares. And for this, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. And the Auburn Avenue people would actually agree with us. They would say amen to the application I'm going to be making now. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, beginning to read at verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The children of heaven, excuse me, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. And when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest, and here's the key phrase, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them but gather the wheat into my barn. And I want you to notice the patience that the farmer has with those tares. Okay, he allows them to continue to grow, and he points out if we're too perfectionistic of who can be in the church, we're going to cause the genuine wheat to suffer. And then take a look at his explanation in verses 36 and following. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the terrors of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. They're the sons of Belial, okay? The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, what the Auburn people are reacting against is a hyper-revivalistic approach that exercises discipline so stringently that no tares can survive within the church. This is what Baptists and Anabaptists have striven for. This is what some Presbyterians uh, and revivalistic Presbyterians ha have done. It's a church where only 
the regenerate can exist. Now, the problem with that is you can't see the heart. You can't tell who is regenerate and who is not regenerate. We can only deal with people objectively as they relate to the covenant, their profession, okay? And any perfectionistic ecclesiology ends up tolerating only people who measure up to some arbitrary, artificial standard. And in doing that, no immature Christians can feel comfortable in that church. It's not an environment in which immature Christians can thrive and grow uh, in the Lord. And I think that's exactly what verses 29 through 30 are emphasizing. It says if you pull up all of the tares, if that's your goal, all tares have to come up. Boy, there's going to be a whole lot of immature Christians that are going to be torn up as well. And so I can sympathize with the Auburn Avenue's overreaction to having a hyper-revivalistic church. But I think at least some Auburn people have gone too far in the pendulum swing in the opposite direction. They impute far too much to being baptized or to being members in the church. Okay, They impute far too much to the language like what David is using here that's really a judgment of charity, calling them uh, brethren. We must at least say that tares don't change from being genuine wheat to being tares on the day of judgment. They're tares right now, right? They've been tares all the way through. Their nature has never changed. Secondly, when a professing believer starts acting like a tear, we would say it's perfectly appropriate to do what David does in this chapter and say, stop doing that. Stop living like the world. Stop acting like a tear. And while we can have patience with people and try not to accidentally pluck up genuine weed in our eagerness to have a pure church, we must not allow the tares to dictate what the church should look like. Christ's attitude toward the tares was patience, not naivete. And in this passage, David allowed the word to dictate, not the tares. And commentators point out, you know, distributing the stuff as he did, that was in the law already. The tares were just ignoring it. And do we need to check if we... Uh, Okay, rescue. Point H, most commentators see David as being a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. David had achieved such Christ-likeness in this chapter, he was able to help other sinners to more and more maturity. And so point one was looking at God's attitude towards sinners. It's kind of the vertical relationship. What does it look like coming from God down in point two, I want to look at the horizontal relationship, what God calls us to be like, going through the same characters, but a horizontal, man-to-man's relationship. Exodus 17 sets up the Amalekites as symbols of all of the arrogant humanists who find it their joy to abuse others. And even though we can't intervene like David did here in exactly the same way, I think God calls us to have intervention for those who are being led to their destruction in abortion. Uh, spouses from abuse, protecting people from slavery and hurt and tyranny. I'm pretty old-fashioned in believing that the cultural mandate continues to bind us. And unfortunately, there's a lot of pastors, including some reform pastors, who have ditched the cultural mandate, and they said, no, that's not the purvey of the church. We just deal internally. We're not going to be involved in culture. We're not going to be involved in culture and doing away with any of the Amalekite abuses uh, that are out there. And uh, I say it's unfortunate because they are ones that I blame for how America has spiraled down out of control. 
Jesus calls us to be salt and light. Christ-likeness does not buy into the two-kingdom theory that relegates most of life to the secular world. Christ-likeness does not ignore the Amalekites like the fundamentalists have tended to do, and it doesn't try to escape from the Amalekites like those early desert monks tried to do. It does not try to mix Amalekite culture together with Christian culture and some of the other um, synthesis have done. And it does not adopt and celebrate the Amalekite culture like the liberal church has done. Instead, it seeks to completely replace everything Amalekite with Christ's grace and Christ's law word. Now the second is the Egyptian who desperately was in need of help. Proverbs 24.11 says, Deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. He doesn't just call us to do that for, unbeliever, uh, for believers. He calls us to do that with unbelievers. Deuteronomy 23.7 says, You shall not abhor an Egyptian. Leviticus 19.34 says, We're to love those Egyptian unbelievers and all of the other foreign unbelievers as ourselves. Love them as yourself is what it calls us to do. That's Leviticus 19.34. So that means we should help an unbeliever who's stranded by the side of the road. We should help an unbeliever who's come to the crisis pregnancy center. We should desire to bless the unbelievers of America by introducing biblical law, biblical views of politics, biblical views of economics and, and every facet of culture. It is our call to be good Samaritans who are blessing uh, even the unbelievers who are out there. Okay, then there's the women and the children, the abused who feel used. Now, I don't even like to think about what the Amalekites uh, were prepared to do with those women and children, but having read quite a bit of archaeology, I can guess, and it ain't pleasant, and I'm not even going to share it with you here. It's pretty awful, but believe it or not, this is not just an ancient problem. We see the same abuses in many countries, and they're beginning to happen in America as well, where there are helpless women and children uh, who have experienced all kinds of abuse. Did you realize that sexual slavery is rampant in America, where people bought from other countries are in slavery here? Uh, did you realize that in America, exploitation of children is huge? The family is under attack on every level. In fact, the Amalekites have actually infiltrated every level of civil government. Uh, the HL, HSLDA as a legal organization that was established precisely because there were so many Amalekites in America who were kidnapping children out of Christian homes on the trumped-up charge of truancy. But there's another organization I want to recommend to you. It's called... Heritage Defense, and this is an organization that I think helps with all of the other rights that are being trampled upon in the family. What do you do if Amalekites want to take your children because you believe in biblical discipline, or because using a midwife at home is illegal, or because you don't want to vaccinate your children? Or because some CPS agent demands to inspect your refrigerator because they got a tip that you're serving your kids raw milk. Or because a doctor reports your child to the state because he is underweight. 
or a hundred other pretexts that these Amalekites are using to kidnap children from homes. And I don't use that term kidnap lightly. It is a kidnapping that is occurring. It just makes me mad. Well, I believe you should join Heritage Defense before any trouble happens. It's like an insurance policy. Great organizations recommended by Doug Phillips, R.C. Sproul, Jr., uh, Vody Bauckham and others. And what they're willing to do, they're willing to aggressively take on the Amalekites on a wide range of issues. In fact, it's the only organization that has such a wide range of issues that they're willing to defend the family on. Yearly fee, very reasonable. And I believe we need an organization like David and his 600 men to rescue women and children from the Amalekites of our day. Now, even if you don't have a family, I recommend that you get involved with that organization, Heritage Defense. And actually, if you look at, um, you look at our passage in verses, um, let's see here, verses 26 and following, uh, verses 26 through 31, that's what Judah did. Judah helped David when he was wandering through Judah and when he was outside of Judah. They helped David, and David now helps them. Anyway, the website's heritagedefense.org. But we can be the 600 ourselves who hear the cry of women and children and the defenseless around the world. And it's not just children who are under attack. Hospitals in Omaha, hospitals in Omaha have deliberately been putting elderly to death, euthanasia is what it's called, despite the fact that those elderly have specifically said they did not want that to happen. I can tell you some horror stories that would sell chills up and down your spine. We're coming to a time, our country has slid downhill so far, where it may be a dangerous thing to go to the hospital. And in fact, it may be a dangerous thing to have police around. There'll be a threat rather than being the help and the servants of the people that they were intended to be. And you see departments in California and Tennessee and other places that are already using the Indefinite Detention Act before it was even passed as an excuse to do abominable things, abusive, unconstitutional acts, even theft. But there are helpless Christians in other countries who are suffering terribly. The church needs to once again become a rescue mission. And even though we can't go overseas to help all of the helpless, we can certainly financially support and pray for organizations that can do that. Organizations like Frontline Fellowship, Operation Mobilization, Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, Technology enables us to be able to adopt a child in another country without bringing them here, but making sure that they are cared for. Uh, There is an organization that's helping to hunt down the African warlord, uh, Kony, who has killed, raped, and enslaved so many children in Uganda and in other countries. I mean, these are organizations we we can support. There's other things we could do. We could have monthly letter-writing parties where we write on, on behalf of the defenseless and try to stand up for them. Christ-likeness is not theoretical. It ministers to those who have suffered from man's inhumanity to man. Then there's the 400 who are a wonderful demonstration of the church militant expending themselves for others. And I wish there were more of these guys. I see these guys as the Navy SEALs of the church, okay? And I wish there were more Navy SEALs spiritually who would take on the tough task going into the... The, 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 the wars, the culture wars with the Amalekites and expending themselves for their families as well. It would be great if this church was just full of Navy SEALs uh, spiritually. 
like Jesus, they were not simply pew sitters who waited for others to minister. When there was a need, they were there. They weren't saying, okay, the church should do it, but they won't get their hands dirty. You are the church. Every one of us is the church. Now, point E gives a balance to this. And this deals with the weary ones who have already expended themselves as far as they are able. And for one reason or another, they have collapsed into a heap. They're the wounded. Maybe they've uh, collapsed because of a nervous breakdown or because they've been taken out with a divorce or uh, because of uh, financial collapse. The church should be a place where the wounded can feel safe and don't have to take the attacks of the sons of Belial who say in this passage, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered except for every man's wife and children that they may lead them away and depart. Their attitude was, we don't need you if you can't keep up. Get out of here. And that should not be the attitude of the church. Our church must have Christ-likeness in ministering to the weary ones and doing as David did, seeking their welfare, lifting them up, uh, even though they've not been able to contribute as much as perhaps we have. That, too, is Christ-likeness. And then there is the thick-skinned soldiers who thought everybody should be as tough as them. It was very easy for these people to be sympathetic. They expended themselves on behalf of the women and the children. They had utterly no sympathy, zero sympathy for the 200. And we all know people, it's so easy to be sympathetic to one group, extremely hard on another group. But here is the interesting point here. David even ministered to them, fought side by side with them, shared the booty with them. Isn't that interesting? He didn't try to get rid of them. And I see this as being an aspect of Christ's likeness. John and James were called the sons of thunder for good reason. They were tough to get along with. Now, these are the kind of guys that get mad very quickly. These are the kind of guys that wanted to call down God's fire to consume two cities because they didn't extend hospitality to them. I mean, what's with that? Peter had his rough edges as well. And yet Jesus loved them anyway. He ministered to them anyway. He even ministered to Judas. May we be like David and be willing to fight side by side with the Joabs within the church. You know, Joab and Abishai, they, he, he said, David says, what have I to do with you? Joab and Abishai, you sons of Zeruiah, they a David. And yet, he ministered to them. He needed them. They needed him. Okay, this is the way the body works. Uh, and uh, we need to love even the tough curmudgeons who might join us. And of course, it is David that I would like all of us to try to imitate as we are able. We've seen earlier in the chapter that David was so secure in Christ that he was able to live by Christ's grace despite the fact that everybody was against him. And nobody was modeling the same graciousness toward him. And I believe in part it was because he interpreted all of the painful events as coming from the hand of a God who loved him, who cared for him. I think that's quite clear in Psalms 25 and 69. It was because, in part, he refused to get bitter even though he had been given a bum deal and injustice had been done to him. It was because he was moved by God's Holy Spirit to care about others' needs more than his own. It was in part because he was refusing to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. And we've looked at other factors that helped him to thrive when others were not thriving. Things like faith, hope, love, a God-centered focus. But ultimately, David's goal was not comfort, 
but conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. And Romans 8, 28 through 29, says that this is God's goal for every one of our lives. It says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. And what is His purpose? He tells us in the next verse that we might be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. He is saying absolutely everything that God brings into your life has as its purpose to conform you to the image of Christ. And everything that God brought into David's life in this chapter and in the previous chapters was to make David Christ-like. So we need to allow those providences to accomplish that great and glorious purpose. Carol Mayhall tells the story of a sculptor who had fashioned a magnificent, very lifelike lion. And he was asked how in the world he could get a statue to look so lifelike And he kind of shrugged his shoulders and he said, it's easy. All I had to do was chip away everything that didn't look like a lion. (laughs) And we're thinking, okay, well, easy for you, not so easy for us. But that's exactly what God the Father has been doing in our lives. Everything He brings into our lives is designed to chip away everything that does not look like Jesus. And when we get to heaven, He's going to say, I've accomplished my purpose because 1 John says we will be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. And so, brothers and sisters, my exhortation to you is to seek to be like Christ, whether you're thinking about sin or righteousness, whether you're ministering to your wives or your ch- and children, or whether you're ministering to a dying Egyptian. Seek to be like Christ when you're facing the culture wars with the Amalekites, or whether you're dealing with the sons of Belial uh, within the church of Jesus Christ. Seek to be like Christ, whether you're a leader like David or whether you're a follower like David's men. Seek to be like Christ, whether you're discouraged and overwhelmed like the 200 or whether you are on top of the world after a victory like the 400. Try not to be perfectionistic. Try not to be apathetic. Embrace the God of judgment. Embrace the God of grace. And since God's plan is conspiring, image of Christ... And because Jesus has died to provide everything necessary to do that, and since He's to transform you, there is no reason that day by day you cannot be conformed into the image of Christ. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank You for Your Word, even when it steps on our toes. And I pray that it would indeed be chipping away everything in our lives that does not look like Jesus. Have your way in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.